Big Issues, Big Names, an interview every month. It's Not That Simple, a podcast from Francisco Manuel dos Santos Foundation. Adam, it's, it's a, an absolute pleasure to have an opportunity to speak with you. Um, these have been troubling times for the world, and it's easy to forget that there was a pandemic which dominated our existence for, for so long, but it persists and it is still um, a, a, an important factor to take into account into uh, uh, geopolitics, global economy. Um, I, I would like you to maybe help us take a step back and, and figure out how the uh, uh, global, um, I guess, hierarchy from a financial standpoint was affected or not by the start of the pandemic and how uh, the countries uh, uh, that, that normally dominate uh, uh, global affairs were affected by it. It was a gradual process. Um, at first, you'd have to say that global financial markets saw the signs in China of something terrible happening beginning in the last days of January. But they interpreted it initially as a Chinese problem and were asking themselves, OK, because China is such a big part of the world economy, how is this going to affect us? And that, that news was bad because China is a huge key part of the supply chain system. It's also a source of demand for large parts of the Asian economy in particular. So that was bad news. And you can see the financial system already beginning to become nervous in February. But then slowly, slowly, as signs of infection spread to the rest of the world, by the end of February, you suddenly get this realization. It's really the last week of that month, February 2020. That, that, oh my word, what is actually happening here is that what's just happened in China, namely this unprecedented lockdown, is going to happen everywhere. It's starting in Italy, of course, and then exploding out into Latin America by way of Ecuador, and then to the rest of Europe, and then to the United States by mid-March. And all of a sudden, the realization is not third world countries, not developing countries, but the three great hubs of the world economy, China, the United States and Europe, which between them account for you know, more than 60% of global GDP, are going to suffer an absolutely extraordinary shock. And when that happens, the financial markets begin to react and they react very fast. That's their nature. They anticipate. And what we see is a surging run to safety. And it's a very strange phenomenon because on the one hand, you see, as it were, the assertion of hierarchy because the place of safety in a crisis like this is in Europe, in Germany, in the global economy in the United States. So money floods in to the American market, the dollar surges. And then, and this is the terrifying realization, is that because people actually need cash dollars, they start selling American assets and the asset they sell in particular is the US Treasury. And the American government debt is what we're really talking about when we're talking about global monetary power. People don't actually hold tatty American banknotes. They hold claims on the American taxpayer, the largest economy in the world. It's not a very large tax base, but it generates a flow of revenue. That's what you hold. And that market, the US Treasury market, in the second week of March becomes seriously destabilized. And that then really sends a shockwave throughout the entire financial system. And at that moment, the, the lender of last resort, the stable of last, stabilizer of last resort has to step in. And that's the central bank, the American, the Federal, American Federal Reserve. And it inundates the world economy with dollars. So in this brief period of time, about six weeks, we saw, as it were, a shocking reassertion of hierarchy, but an assertion of hierarchy within fragility, because we saw how even the US Treasury market in a moment of extreme stress could become destabilized. You couldn't actually find a buyer 
for an asset which is normally treated as as good as cash or better than cash, because you can always sell it and you can get interest on it in the meantime. Something that, that seemed crazy for me at the time, and even looking back several months later, was how much each country's reaction depended on the leader it had. And the impact that you saw, not only from a, a, a financial standpoint, but from a, a social standpoint. Um, fast forwarding to 2022, some of those leaders are still in power, others are, are not. The dust has began to settle, at least regarding the, the, the last variant. How much do you think that the, 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 the major uh, superpowers and economies have suffered from a, a political standpoint and a, a leadership standpoint relating to those decisions made by the, the, the leaders who were, who were in power at the time of the start of the pandemic? I think it's difficult to deny, right, that it made a huge difference whether you were being governed by, say, a, a sensible government like the government of Portugal <laughs> or, uh, you know, Angela Merkel, who was doing her best to manage yet another crisis or, you know, Boris Johnson or who was talking about Superman and his cape and Britain saving the world once again or Donald Trump, who God knows what Donald Trump was doing, watching television and Twittering, or Bolsonaro, or AMLO in Mexico, who also from the left, you know, sort of denied the reality of this of disease. It made a difference. It made a difference to public confidence. It made a difference to the way in which society reacted because calm, concerted leadership could deliver a message to society that we can do this together. Um, in Italy, for instance, Conte's administration did far better than one would have anticipated. Macron was typically forceful, perhaps a little bit too forceful for his own good. And there were shambles in other countries, Brazil being perhaps the most extraordinary example of just top-down denial amongst the big countries with large infection rates. In the end, however, though, I think one should not exaggerate the role of individual leaders. There is a terrible tendency, if you like, to politicise and, and polarise this. And generally speaking, as a liberal centrist myself, of course, you know, I'm perfectly happy to see people, you know, bashing the likes of Donald Trump, whose politics I find very disagreeable. But if you look <laughs> overall at the big picture, if you look at the ultimate metric of how society's dealt with this crisis, excess deaths, then I think it comes down to structural factors. It comes down to whether or not your health system is high functioning and concerted, whether or not in a small compact country you can build a social consensus around measures, or as in the United States, we've had what people call the patchwork epidemic, very severe in New York initially, and then very severe in the South, and then in the second phase again, as, as recently as the beginning of 2022, large parts of the South of the United States were in manifest public health crisis. Thousands of people dying a day, 2,000 a day at the end of January. And that is a regional effect. And then there's also just luck. I mean, think of poor Ecuador, you know, with the country split between one half north of the equator and the other half south, and the people south of the equator took their summer holidays in, you know, in the winter in Spain, one of the major centers of the infection, and then brought that back to that part of Ecuador and produced one of the true disasters of the epidemic in a medium income, middle income country with limited public health facilities and large informal urban housing. So all of those factors play in. The standout, the extreme standout success story is, of course, China. And as we know, that has produced a whole series of problems for Beijing because they now have to chase the elusive goal of zero COVID. But if you looked at 2020, 2021, you'd have to say there's only one country in the world. Maybe you could talk about Australia, New Zealand 
um, South Korea, but there's one really enormous country which followed a very different trajectory from everyone else. All right, so let's let, let's take the opportunity to talk specifically about about China and how much its growth was affected by by the pandemic uh, over the last two years. Of course, in your in your latest book, you say that China is our geostrategic enemy, our commercial rival, but it has to be our environmental partner. How is it possible to reconcile all of this? Yeah, that formula, in fact, comes from the EU as much as anything else. That was the grand, that was the position in the paper formulated by the EU on China, that, that trifecta of different relationships. China was hit very hard economically at first. One shouldn't underestimate this. Um, simply because they were successful in their public health campaign shouldn't you know, allow us to ignore the, the damage that was done. China has a large small-scale service sector economy as well as its world-beating manufacturing and all of those sectors just as everywhere else in the world took a very severe hit. The difference is they then managed to contain the public health disaster so by March they're already in recovery mode and then they power through with the conventional means of counter-cyclical stabilization policy in China which means heavy industrial infrastructure and a real estate boom. And China's story now has, in a sense, moved on, right? I mean, they have the chronic COVID management problem. But the fact of the matter is that the central economic problem for China now is really no longer COVID as such. Even the supply chain story is manageable. Their problem is, as it were, how do you deal with the consequences of your own success, which is driven by debt fueled heavy investment in urban infrastructure. It's a little bit like the problem of Southern Europe building up to 2008, notably Spain. And for an economy to get over that kind of shock where suddenly your real estate bubble bursts and the regime very deliberately burst it, because they regarded the real estate boom as a threat to regime stability, has created a very uneven pattern. So we've seen an initial shock, a strong recovery, and then recessionary tendencies in 2021, in the second half of the year, as the regime is dealing with the real estate burst, bubble bursting, uh, and a whole variety of other symptoms of unbalanced growth, including an energy crisis in China. And really, it will be interesting to see how rapidly Chinese growth actually continues in 2022 and beyond. I think most analysts say we've moved from a regime of 7 8% per annum growth mm. to one that's probably more in the order of 4 or 5%, which is still incredibly rapid by any standards. They have a static population. This still means very rapid economic and social progress. But it isn't the helter-skelter, world-changing, epic kind of boom that we saw in the first two decades of the 21st century. When it comes to, to uh, uh, climate change, to protecting the planet, to making brave and bold decisions, to change the course of history, uh, China is, is, is mentioned, obviously, and it's easy to see why from a, from a population standpoint and from a, uh, an economic and, and, and social standpoint. But people tend to forget about Brazil, Indonesia, uh, uh, India. What's the role of, of these countries and how much did, did COVID impacting their uh, economy maybe change their plans to, to get with the program? I think this is absolutely crucial, a shift in worldview here, right? The future is not, I think, a new bipolar or new unipolar world in which China replaces the United States and then we all focus on what China does. I mean, apart from anything else, the Chinese model is much harder to replicate in other countries than the American model. The world that we're actually headed towards, and the Chinese know this as well as anyone else, look at the way they work the One Belt, One Road program, is a G20 or even a G30 world. Multipolarity is the only game in town that is the direction of the global economy. It is also the, the direction of the climate problem. If you look at CO2 emissions, the finger of blame, of course, points at the rich countries in the north, the United States and Europe, and our failure is to not reduce emissions more quickly. 
But if you look at where the growth is coming from, it's all in the so-called rest of the world. And the rest of the world are those other big players, the Brazils, the Indonesias of this world. And they have come through this crisis in varying degrees to varying degrees. Certainly Brazil, of course, it's a historic failure. And it's, it's a real disaster for a country for whom public health was an anchor, really, of national identity, if you think going back to the late 19th century and early 20th century. It's one of the, you know, the founding identity elements of, of modern Brazil, that it has a highly competent public health administration. It failed in this crisis, thanks in large part to the intervention of national government at the regional level, and the regions in Brazil are huge. There's different stories. It's much more complex. Nevertheless, a huge challenge. Indonesia, mercifully, was not in the crosshairs of the maximum epidemic. It had an epidemic. It shouldn't be underestimated. But a, a protean society like that, gigantic, sprawling, at the heart of the climate problem, really, I think, has higher priorities than COVID. There was reason to panic about COVID early on because we didn't understand it. We did not know how lethal this disease was going to be. And in highly affluent, rich and old societies, which it strikes at directly, there was every reason to take it you know, maximally seriously. But standing back from this problem, looking at the range of immense challenges a country like Indonesia faces, you'd have to say it ranks pretty low. And the same is true if you ask the big African countries. They definitely want their own vaccine development capacity. And this is one of the lessons that the crisis taught. But would COVID vaccine be their priority? Surely not. They have a range of other diseases which are mass killers and have been endemic in Africa for, for really centuries in some cases, decades in the case of other really terrifying diseases like HIV. And so those have to be the priority for them. COVID, in a sense, is a useful reminder of the centrality of public health to all economic development. We can't really move forward and have growth unless we can sort these sorts of risks out. Is it the most dangerous thing we could face? Is it the most dangerous thing we currently face? Will it, is it the most dangerous face we, thing we will face in future? Evidently not. So we should treat it as a warm-up act, as a training exercise mm -hmm. for the sort of things that could lie ahead. Do you think that with some of these uh, uh, governments and, and, and political uh, um, uh, structures to force uh, some of the uh, biggest pollutants on the planet to adopt responsible measures, I mean, are, are sanctions a possibility in your view? You'd have to be in a pretty strong position yourself to mm. feel that sanctions would be a legitimate mm. method. I mean, where would be the moral high ground from which you would deliver those? Mm. We're decades away from that. I mean, if Europe literally achieves net zero and confronts a hostile Russia, which is determined on destroying the environment by being the last gas and oil producer, well, then maybe one could consider that. Mm. That is not, as it were, the basis on which we should act now. But what we can do, what is discussed, and what is discussed in terms of power, is something like carbon border adjustment. And carbon border adjustment is simply saying, look, in our market, if you want to sell here, certain standards prevail. Those standards are low carbon. If you're a high carbon producer, then you must pay the social cost of carbon difference between you know, the actual cost of producing the steel or aluminium that you want to sell to us and to our consumers, and our consumers must pay this too. Um, the difference between that and the low cost steel and aluminium that we're trying to promote. And that was always intended as a threat. If you listen to the EU, the idea was never to actually apply the carbon border adjustment. The idea was by using the threat of a carbon border adjustment to change behavior and to encourage Russia, Ukraine, amongst others, but also, of course, China to shift the way in which they produce heavy industrial goods. But at some level, it's clearly the exercise of pressure by means of economic tools 
um, and to that extent, it belongs in the family that we might call sanctions. But I think it would be very unhelpful right now if we put those kind of measures in the same box. We should think of them as common tools of adjustment. And China, after all, is a partner with the EU precisely in the business of carbon pricing. I mean, the Chinese are building what will be in due course by far and away the largest carbon pricing mechanism in the world. And one of their models for that is, in fact, the example set by the EU. So this is an area where experts can collaborate and where we can, in fact, bolt the two systems together. So I, I think something we learned from uh, uh, some of the countries that we've been discussing here, uh, India, Brazil, China, uh, and, and others as well, is that during the pandemic, it was easy to see uh, that these countries arguably had a different relationship to the truth and in the way in which they shared the truth with their, their population than uh, uh, other nations, whether it be in the European Union or, or, or beyond. Um, I wanted to shift gears here a little bit and, and talk about a, a topic which you uh, discussed in your, in your first book uh, regarding statistics and how, how, how important they, they were in the construction of, of the modern German state. Um, it, it, I think it's one of the uh, essential questions of our time is the relationship that humans have with the truth and with numbers and with statistics. How important is it to have a world that follows facts rather th than fiction? And what did we learn about the pandemic that we can take moving forward? Well, I think it did indeed confirm the, the essential importance of various types of transparency, various types of enumeration, quantitative logics for public coordination. I mean, you can go to the metaphysical level of truth. You can insist on this as a fundamental value. You can also take a more pragmatic position, which is that if we're going to, as large collective societies, organize ourselves effectively, we're going to need certain things to coordinate around. We're going to have to agree that when you know, old people are dying in hospitals for lack of oxygen. This is caused by a common factor and there are certain uh, shortages that we have to address. And we can simply limit ourselves to that. I'm a little wary philosophically of wanting to you know, take out the capital T truth word. What we definitely need to be able to do is to coordinate and cooperate with each other. One of the real miracles of the current moment is that neither India nor China has chosen to indulge in climate denial. I mean, every interest in the world, you would think, will be stacked in favor of them casting off this claim and this highly abstract, indeed, in some ways, improbable claim about the world in the interest of national economic development. That, after all, is what, you know, super rich oil barons in Texas do every day of the week. That is their position. It can't be true. It's against my economic interest. Taking climate change seriously is a huge challenge for emerging markets. And yet none of them have indulged in this. Right? The Chinese regime, the Indian regime, they argue about when they're going to do it and the cost they're going to have to pay, but they have not enabled this. Now, Hindu nationalism comes from a place on metaphysics and truth, which is radically different from my own. But there you have the BJP government coming to COP26 and overturning the national position of India, which is that other people have to fix this problem and committing to decarbonization. And China a year earlier by 2060. These are immense commitments by regimes which could opt out of our truth regime and have not. They're opting into it. So that for me is a real example of clarity of leadership and indeed of a kind of shared human heritage. Think also of the way in which we approach the COVID vaccine. Like the, the Chinese regime, of course, was, wasn't keen on the scientific information getting out. But once it got out there, it produced an incredible 
Exactly, it produced a coordination of scientific activity. Now, there are going to be holdouts. There are going to be minorities of people who refuse the vaccine. But we know, because of our science, that it doesn't matter. If we can break certain thresholds, 60, 70, 80% immunization, we can conquer this disease. So I think the politics here really are of cooperation, of agreement, of finding the basis. And something like the IPCC on the one hand, or the international vaccine regime in the production of the vaccine regime, are incredibly hopeful signs of how humanity, all 8 billion of us, can coordinate our activities, delivery, distribution, the equitable supply of vaccines to low-income countries, that is, in, it were, our great failure. And we should frankly and honestly face both dimensions of this. But you're absolutely right that forms of coordination, truth, if you like, but in other respects, just simply, can we agree on these data, which I'll settle for, and we need to build institutions around doing that, are essential to everything that we love. I mean, everything from you know things like sports through to arts, mm. to culture, to communication, it all relies on that willingness to buy in to a common set of symbols, a common set of meanings around which to organize our lives. There's fun in diversity and we shouldn't repress diversity. That's not the point. But we do need to enable communication, interaction, cooperation and mutual flourishing, growth in some form. And that does depend on these kind of minimal levels of coordination around key issues. And I wanted to get your opinion on whether you thought that the pandemic made propaganda and fake news worse because we were all sitting at home and our way of interacting with the world was through social media where that is so uh, prevalent. And in, in your opinion, what can be done to fix it? It's a big question, but what can be done to fix it as we return to our daily lives and have more human contact? How can we turn up the volume of the truth and turn down all the noise that's out there? I mean, it's been a two-way action, hasn't it? Because on the one hand, absolutely, people burrowed themselves into their rabbit holes of unreality. But then in the end, after all, the truth bites back, you know, again and again, those horrifying scenes of, you know, anti-vaxxers, science denying people finally in their last moments in hospital, realizing that they're actually dying of the disease that everyone told them they would die of if they didn't take care of themselves. And those moments of human awakening are, are you know, brutal demonstrations of the, the earnestness of this problem. So I think it is absolutely crucial that we get a handle on this. There is no easy solution. There never has been an easy solution to the problem of free speech, the problem of, of open communication, and especially not when there is, as it were, a rapidly advancing technological frontier, which is changing the maids in which we can interact all mm. the time. This problem goes all the way back to the invention of the printing press and its explosive consequences for Europe during the Reformation, because it's the combination of the printing press and the Reformation that blows Europe up in the religious wars of the 1500s and 1600s. So this is a huge problem. The only, I think, way of moving forward is intelligent regulation. And it's a matter of policing ourselves. It's a matter of taking responsibility for how we interact in the, in the, in the internet space. But it's also, of course, a matter of constraining businesses, which have an incentive in some spaces to, as it were, promote untruth. And on the other hand, you know, excellent initiatives by private business, which in fact are about re-anchoring reality, re-anchoring truth. Um, like our, our hosts on this program, who are trying to create the space for an intelligent conversation. And then finally, of course, that has to be ratified 
and endorsed, and ultimately one would hope at even the global level, by public action, by politics. So it's those kind of three levels that have to interact, right? The, the intimate private zone, where we actually have to do work on ourselves to discipline the way in which we tweet. I, you know, I think mm. twice, mm. three times about every single thing I put out, mm. because you know how explosive, as too aggressive, unhelpfully mm. sarcastic comment can be. It can disturb 20 people's mornings. You don't want to do that. To the level of the private business, which has to ask itself questions about what its responsibility to the public is, to the level of the politicians. And public broadcasting in the, in the European style is a key anchor, which countries like the United States miss painfully because what they do is establish within the given political frame, it's never going to be open to absolutely everyone's opinion, but it establishes, as it were, within the given political frame, certain limits of reasonable discourse. And we need those, right? Because the total freedom, completely uninhibited pursuit of whatever we fancy, the QAnon message of do your own research, will lead most of us for most issues into superstition and misunderstanding. Adam, I wanted to ask you about the way in which the West is attempting to support the Ukraine in, in fighting Russia and uh, trying to survive this, uh, th this invasion. And a, a lot has been said about sanctions. Um, what's your opinion on the way the sanctions are being applied? Are they having any kind of uh, uh, impact? And what has history taught us in the way that uh, uh, this measure of, of, of uh, uh, fighting um, uh, uh, the economics of war can, can have? The sanctions that we've adopted are in certain respects very dramatic indeed and th this shouldn't be underestimated. I mean the assault on the oligarchic leadership clique around Putin is very comprehensive at this point. Um, whether we can strip extremely wealthy people of all of their assets is really I think an open question but we're certainly making a pretty determined effort. The other set of measures that really matter are bans on tech imports to Russia which are in the foreseeable future, I think, are going to seriously impede the Russian war machine. The third element that really matters is the attack on the financial system. And in the end, after many months of debating, you know, the private email system that connects uh, the world's bank SWIFT as the main means of sanctions, in the end, it's really been the correspondence banks in the United States, and then and above all, the attack on the Russian central bank and the freezing of Russia's huge foreign exchange reserves that has been the game changer. And that, that is extremely dramatic. Its effects will be felt over time. Uh, it immediately produced a paralyzing collapse in the value of the ruble and a closure of the financial markets in Russia. Nominally, the ruble has recovered to a considerable extent, but that is really in a non-existent market. We don't know what it will be valued at. But the big question, of course, is when and how we might step towards um, blocking Russian oil and gas exports. And the United States has moved towards uh, limiting its imports of oil, but the United States isn't a big importer of Russian oil. So the critical issue, I think everyone's aware, is Europe and when it will move towards uh, stopping its reliance on Russian gas. And that's the fundamental inconsistency. That's the fundamental paradox of our attitude, which is that we denounce the Russian assault. We're indignant at the violation of international law and the horrors that are committed. And yet every single day, we continue to spend hundreds of millions of euros on energy imports from Russia. And why? Because it's very difficult to separate what the, oneself from those. And even if at, if at some point in the future we do manage to do so, it will be after a period in which we effectively subsidize the Russian war effort. And of course, you studied and you wrote extensively about the Nazi economy. So I also would like to get your opinion on what do you think the Russia economy 
can look like and will look like after all this is over? I think the Russians right now are in something akin to a siege situation. They've adopted all of the measures that you would expect a country under severe external pressure to adopt. So they've effectively got exchange controls. They are asserting a government privilege to demand that all of Russia's exporters convert their earnings into um, ruble, um, which gives the Russian state a first claim on foreign exchange. We are going to see the beginning of rationing of imports. All of this is what wartime economies, highly constrained siege economies have always had to do. Um, it will, in the long run, of course, severely damage the prospects for the Russian economy. I don't think we should expect a collapse. We, we didn't see a collapse, for instance, in Iran. Russia is an even more sophisticated economy than Iran. So it will substitute. There will be opportunities here even for Russian entrepreneurs to replace imports that Russia can no longer buy. But overall, the effect will be to reduce efficiency, to knock the Russian economy back. In the Iranian case, the economy settled about 7 to 10 percent below where it was before the latest wave of sanctions and then grew more slowly from that point. And I think that depressing scenario is probably what Russia should expect at this point. Gotcha. And uh, uh, as we look at, at the way this could end, Adam, and the impact the West could have in, in, uh, in, in making that happen, with uh, uh, NATO and, and, and uh, uh, other military forces resisting the temptation of getting involved with, with uh, boots on the ground because of the fear of a third world war. Where does that leave us into the impact that, that, that could be made by, by NATO and the West in, in speeding up the resolution of this, uh, of this conflict? Well, we are having a huge impact on the conflict as it is because the Ukrainians ability to resist depends not just on their heroism and the significant military reforms they undertook from 2014-15 onwards but also on a huge supply of lethal anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons and so long as those continue to flow in Russia really doesn't have many good options it can escalate in an incredibly brutal fashion but that's not actually a strategy it can pursue on a very large scale across a country the size of Ukraine so we are affecting this war very dramatically. It's a matter of politics, really, that Russia and NATO so far have managed to avoid the open declaration of conflict, which at some level would really be justifiable at this point. So we are seeing diplomacy from both sides. And I think the question really is, at what point do both the Ukrainians and Russians reach a stage in which peace and the horrible business of making a peace under the circumstances of this war seems like the more attractive option to them. And that's ultimately a political question, and that's in the nature of peacemaking, right? It's this ghastly combination of existential questions of life and death on the one mm. hand and politics on the other. And have you been surprised by the role of China or the non-role of China in, in, uh, in uh, at least actively uh, influencing the process? I think China is doing what you would expect, given that they, like we, were massively surprised by what's happened. I think surprised in the double sense that I don't think it's reasonable to say that the Russians gave them any advance warning of what they were going to do. And secondly, once the Russians invaded, they, like we did, probably expected the Russians to roll over Ukraine quite rather quickly. And so to find themselves in a situation where they have what looks like an open-ended commitment to an ally alliance partner that then proves incompetent, in the military domain, I think for Beijing must be a, an absolute shock. And so given all of that, I don't find it surprising that they're playing the extremely low key role that they've played so far. They haven't been on the one hand willing to distance themselves from Moscow 
Um, and on the other hand, uh, their, their willingness to show open commitment has been very limited as well. I think that holds open the option, which will be novel, fascinating, and will be a marker really of the new multipolarity of the world, that China might play a significant role in arbitrating a peace in Europe. And, and that, after all, would be a sort of an appropriate, I think, response to this situation. Since all of the European sides are in one way or another engaged, we do have to look to the wider world at this point for not neutrals exactly, but partners that, as it were, could be in the business of allowing this to be negotiated. We cannot any longer apply the, you know, the Minsk format, the Normandy format, where Europe acted as the honest broker. We're, we're now in a position where we need externals and that can't be the United States either. So this will be one of, I think, the world's historical markers at this point. If Russia and Ukraine cannot deal, do the deal bilaterally, we're going to need to call on outside parties and, and China might be one of those. And one of the factors, obviously, that is influencing and can influence the negotiations that take place uh, uh, off, off the, the battlefield, so to speak, is obviously the, 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 the impact of the, of the energy supply to Europe and, and beyond. So uh, regarding energy, uh, what, is, uh, uh, what do you expect will happen after the, the dust settles and in the way that, that the different countries and different uh, powers get their source of energy and maybe speeding up the need to to rely on, on renewable sources of, of energy and, and responsible uh, and sustainable sources of energy as well? I think we see three contradictory developments. I mean, one in the United States is obviously to double down on domestic fossil fuel production, which is a extremely, I think, counterproductive development, but one the Biden administration seems committed to. It also makes electoral sense in the midterms. The other development that we've seen is a very considerable independence on the part of the Saudis and the Emiratis who against America's very serious pressure to up production have in fact stuck to their relationship with Russia in OPEC plus and are looking for new bilateral relationships with India and China. So that too is something we're going to have to reckon with. In Europe, however, I think what this does is to force and to speed up and to add obvious new logic to the policy to which Europe had committed itself in 20 and 2021, which is to look for an accelerated energy transition. And I think we're going to see therefore a kind of tripartite division of energy policy globally. The big question is really not so much for the rich countries in the short term, though tough as these energy price increases have been, especially mm. for people on low incomes in Europe. Mm. Um, the, I think the even more pressing question is going to be how are low income energy importing countries in the developing world going to cope with the shock? Because this is going to last a while. This is going to be true also in the food sector. And so we need to be very attentive to the potential for debt crisis across perhaps a dozen, maybe even more low income countries. And as far as Europe's concerned, this could come as close as Tunisia, which is one of the countries which is looking most fragile at this moment. Very quickly, final question before we get to the, to the quick fire. Uh, do you think that we need some kind of regulation, especially on digital and social media for controlling facts, for con for uh, 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 framing facts and, and the truth and, and eliminating information that's simply not true? 
Well, I think the negative side is already beginning to come into play and the big big tech platforms are already investing considerable amounts of money. We should be after them, after them, after them, pushing them hard on this all the time. On the positive side, to my mind, the only answer is just to pump out good stuff. Mm. Right? The answer is not, as it were, to sort of win the game in mm. a zero-sum fashion in mm. which what you try and do is just censor all of the nonsense that's mm. out there and the dangerous information. The way to win this game is to put out attractive sensible, truthful contributions to the argument. That does not mean that we have to agree about everything, but we need to be intelligent about the things that we agree and disagree about. And we need to fill the public space with that kind of information. And it's got to be sexy. It's got to be cool. It has to play the game, right? And the Ukrainians, for instance, right now in the crisis, in these first weeks of the crisis, are delivering an extraordinary lesson in how you, under extremely difficult circumstances, play this game to win it. Right? And they're, they're playing it for existential stakes. So that is, a, to me, an example of how you know, complex this, this sphere is. So it's, it's a huge challenge. There are no simple answers. But the answer, to my mind, is yes, of course, cut the absolute nonsense out if you possibly can. But on the other hand, really just focus on the good stuff. Because the good stuff, I believe, will win out if it's packaged the right way, if it's sold the right way, it's communicated the right way. All right, we're going to conclude with a quartet of uh, quick-fire questions uh, in, in one word or, or maximum one sentence. I'd like you to try to, to answer these, even though I'm aware it's not, it's not easy. Um, what is one personality trait a good leader should have? Endurance. Wow, okay. What is the biggest challenge humanity faces right now, in your view? The problem of peace, it turns out. If you could change one thing in the world right now uh, from superpowers that you would, would inherit, what, what, would, what would it be? What would you change? Constructive dialogue between China and the United States. And what has been the most important learning in your life and, and career through the experiences you've had? The sheer force, surprising, protean, overwhelming, totally confusing of history and, and its drama and how rapidly things that you take for granted can be overturned and changed. Adam, it's been a, um, a pleasure, a privilege to, to speak with you today, get your insight on, on such an important uh, topic and um, stay safe, all the best and uh, look forward to, to seeing you soon. It's been a pleasure. It's not that simple as a podcast from Francisco Manuel dos Santos Foundation. Tune in every month at ffms.pt or subscribe on the usual platforms.